hear the word of the Lord. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles pure and honorable so that they may speak so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation this is the word of the lord you may be seated let's pray father in heaven thank you thank you for preserving this epistle of peter for millennia so that we could be encouraged by it so that we could read these words and be reminded of how much we have in common with people who lived 2,000 years ago. That we might be further rooted in the gospel. That we might be pointed back to the gospel. And that we might be empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I am indeed Michael Langer. It is my absolute pleasure uh, to be here this morning. I am here alone. My wife and my two children who are still at home are teenagers. They went to McLean Presbyterian Church this morning because that's our regular church. Um, I drove the one car we have, so that meant they took an Uber or a Lyft to church, uh, which is a bit of a, bit of a jog for them. Um, but I got to enjoy this absolutely beautiful drive coming down out of D.C., with no traffic, which is totally bizarre and absolutely wonderful to be able to come down here and, and share the gospel with all of you. Because the gospel is the most important thing. It is the most important thing. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. And maybe perhaps sprinkle in a few stories about what it is that God is doing through Ministry to State in Washington, D.C., where uh, I worked for about a year and a half. Uh, unbeknownst to me, ministry to state, I didn't know this position even existed until two years ago. And I've been in the denomination for 12 years. Uh, so it kind of a, runs under the radar. It's been in Washington, D.C. for 16 years. It was started by a man named Chuck Garriott, who used to pastor in Oklahoma City. Uh, he started a Bible study there in the, on the Capitol in Oklahoma. And uh, was leading a Bible study, and then the Oklahoma City bombing happened. And his Bible study grew, and people's interest in, like, can you explain what's going on and give us some kind of hope in the middle of this? And in that, the Lord used that to, to put in him a calling that led him to think, you know what, maybe I need to go to Washington, D.C. and do this. And just minister uniquely to people who are, who are serving in government. And so he did, and... He has been laboring for 16 years, coming alongside those who serve in our nation's capital and in basically all areas, uh, in the elected, elected officials, we work with appointed officials, we work with staffers, 
We work with uh, folks who are interns. We basically do discipleship, where we come alongside folks and help them to grow in the gospel and their biblical worldview. We do evangelism, where we're working to see people actually come to faith in Christ through various events and things that we do. Uh, we're working to try to connect people to each other, because Washington, D.C. is a very lonely place. It is very isolating. And so we want to connect them to, to other believers. We also want to kind of empower them to not just be disciples, but to actually go out and, you know, embrace the mission of God. And then we're trying to, we try to communicate to churches how they can better come alongside those who are serving in the government in a healthy way. Because most people who live in or work in Washington who are not Christians, their interaction with people who say, I'm a Christian, that's usually the first thing they hear before they hear a whole bunch of really negative things about how horrible they are and how much they don't care about anybody. And so we try to come alongside both those serving in Washington and those, uh, you know, in the church. And, you know, when I got into this, I, it's probably been, oh, I don't know, the greatest joy of my life to do this job. I loved planting a church in Iowa City. Uh, we were there for uh, seven years. We planted that church in the middle of an economic disaster and a, and a natural disaster. There was a huge flood happening. But when I went to seminary, I never thought I would go back home. I never thought I would go back to Iowa City and plant a church in my own hometown. And some of you, maybe you're thinking to yourself, Iowa City, why is that important? Well, I'm going to tell you. Uh, we get to uh, chop the list down for who you get to vote for for president. So people come to Iowa, we cut the list down from 20 to like three or four, and we send them on their way. So you're welcome. <laughs> we do. We take that very seriously. Uh, it's also home of the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is the most prestigious writing program in the world. So it's, it's, a, it's a academic, it's a progressive town. We planned a church, and a church was filled with, with people who were all about academia, and it had homeless people in it. So 85% academics, 15% homeless people. It was beautiful. And we loved it. The church just bought their own building in downtown Iowa City. I I'm, I'm, couldn't be more happy. And then the Lord moved us to Chicago where we planted a church in the southwest suburbs. We kind of replanted um, a multi-site church and kind of turned it into its own particular work. Very different than Iowa City. Blue collar, working class, White Sox fans. And I'm a Cub fan. But while I was there, the Cubs went to three consecutive National League Championship Series and won the World Series, so I kind of felt like my job there was done. Uh, and honestly, we, we, as much as we loved the work there, the ministry work, we did not, we always felt like we didn't fit in, that we just didn't belong in the suburbs. And then the Lord moved us to Washington, D.C., and like I said, this, it, it's almost like God just wrote out a job description for me to do. Just everything, all of my strengths, very few of my weaknesses, and said, this, this is a job for Michael to do. I, I cannot believe I get to do this job every single day. It is the, it's just an unbelievable blessing to come alongside people who are serving in Washington, D.C. Who are serving because they honestly believe that they're doing something important. That they're part of something bigger than them. 
that they're seeking the, the welfare and the flourishing of society. And whether or not you agree with what their vision of that flourishing is, that's what they're there for. They honestly believe that they are a part of some great thing that they get to do. And maybe in a small part, they're, they're there because they want to change the world. And I, I totally get that. It's why I planted two churches. Because I believe that God was going to change the world through these two churches. We're going to change Iowa City through this wonderful church plant called One Ancient Hope. We're going to change the southwest suburbs of Chicago through Redemption Presbyterian Church. It's why I, I, I got into church planting. And it's why so many people come to Washington, D.C. They, they want to change the world. And for some of you, that's terrifying. That idea of like, oh, we're going to change the world. You're like, I don't want any part of that. That's scary. But some people really, and that, that's a thing that really kind of gets you going. Imagine what it must have been like for the disciples. Right? Jesus is just walking by, and he's just calling people to join him. And my favorite disciple of all of them is Peter. Right? So Peter, one day, he's out there. He's hanging out with his, his brother. They're doing some, you know, fishing, whatever. And Jesus walks by, and he says, hey, you, follow me. Okay. You ever ask yourself this question? Why did Peter ask no questions? Did, did Peter say, and, and you are... And we're going to do what? We're going where? How does this end? He asks no questions. He literally knows nothing about Jesus at this point. He knows nothing about the mission that Jesus is on. And I don't think he even knows who he is at this point. I think he thinks he knows who he is. And I think after that first couple days of ministry, especially after the day where Jesus, it says he came and, and he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And then at the end of the day, the entire town was gathered outside of the house. I imagine that Peter thought to himself, okay, this is my opportunity to finally be recognized as the leader I know I am, as the genius who can rise to the top of this group. At least that's the Peter that I want him to be because it's the Peter who makes sense to me, the Peter who's trying because he absolutely believes that he matters and that this is the place where he can he can shine which is why he's constantly the first guy who jumps out of the boat he's the guy who says jesus you're never going to be taken you're never going to be taken if you are i'm going to i'm going to take my sword out i'm going to cut the ear off of the guy he's the guy who goes ooh 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 call on me call on me i know who you are i know who you are He's also the guy who says, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never betray you. I would never do that. Peter basically makes a career out of over-promising and under-delivering. That's, that's Peter. That's the rock on who Jesus is going to build his church. And if you think it all got fixed when the Holy Spirit came, then I commend to you Acts chapter 10 where the uh, the blanket comes out of heaven and God says, take and eat. All things are clean three times. And Peter says, oh yeah, absolutely, I get it. This is going to be amazing. But then we read in Galatians that Paul goes to him and says, hey, what's up with the picnic? You're not having bratwurst? No pork chops for you? What, what are you doing? Paul says, I, I had to oppose him to his face. Because Peter, it just didn't sink in for him for a while. 
But eventually he writes 1 Peter. He writes this letter that is an encouragement to the church about how to live in a time and an age in a community where basically people either think you're completely irrelevant and don't care about you, or they think you're the problem. And so Peter's commendation to them is how do you live, how do we live in this place and this time in a gospel-centered way? Because eventually he gets to this place. And just give you three, three kind of quick things here. The first one is that he calls them uh, to put on the identity of God's people. To put on the identity of God's people. So think about the ways in which we tend to identify with one another. Maybe it's through uh, sports teams, your sports jerseys. I have a lot of Cubs jerseys. I have some Iowa Hawkeye jerseys. I love to wear them around so people know this is, this is my team. Maybe we uh, identify through our accent. I talked to a couple folks as they were leaving the first service. I'm like, oh, you're from the South. And they're like, yes, Pensacola. I didn't know people in Pensacola had a Southern accent, but they do apparently. Um, and so we, we, can, we can find each other an identity kind of through our culture, through through our accent. Some of us find our identity in our school. Went to the University of Iowa, we're the Big Ten. Uh, people who are part of the SEC have this almost like cult-like sense of identity uh, with, wrapped up in the SEC. Maybe it's your party affiliation, Republican, Democrat, Constitutional Law Party, Green Party, Independence Freedom Party, I don't, I don't know, there's like a million of them now. And maybe it's your branch of your military. Maybe it's, it's the rank that you have. You go around and say, I'm, I'm a colonel, I'm a lieutenant. I'm wh- whatever it is that you are, it, this is how our identity works. And, and we do this because identity gives us unity, right? Identity gives us value. And identity also says we're different than these other people. And this is part of what Peter is working to ground them in. If you look, it says... Uh, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Notice what Peter says. You are chosen, royal, and holy. He says, part of your identity in God is that you have value. You are chosen, royal, and holy. Why? Why? Simply because God says you are. That's it. The reason that you're chosen, the reason that you're royal, the reason that you're holy is because God says you are chosen, royal, and holy because the work my son did on your behalf. That's it. There's nothing else. That's supposed to be good news for us. But as we examine our lives, maybe we find that we spend most of our time at work or raising our kids trying to prove to other people that we have value. If our kids do really well in school or in sports, then we have value. If I get that next promotion, then I'll, then I'll have value. If I graduate at the top of my class, then, then I'll have value. Then I'll be good enough. And that's not the gospel. Here's what the gospel is. There is absolutely nothing, not a single thing, that you can ever do or achieve that is going to make you as valuable as God says you are when he says that you are chosen, 
royal, and holy. So you can take your foot off the gas a little bit. Because the value that we have comes from our identity in Christ. The other part of this identity, though, is, is it also unites us. Notice again what he says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is very unifying language that he's, he's talking to people who are Jews and Gentiles reading this, and he's saying, you are together a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are one people with one vocation to be priests. Think of that. If you're hearing this this morning, your primary vocation is, is to be a priest for the Lord. To proclaim worship, to lead worship for people. To be a unifying proclaimer of the gospel. Because the gospel unifies more than anything else. How many of you here would say, so you know, I, I live in Washington, I go to offices every day, and here's what most people in their offices hear. You know what? There's a lot of conflict in Washington. There's not a lot of bipartisanship, not a lot of cooperation. Raise your hand if you wish there was more, if there was an end to gridlock in Washington. Raise your hand if you are tired of the gridlock in Washington. Some people enjoy it. They're keeping their hands down. They want to see gridlock, and that's okay. Um, so here's the thing about gridlock. Once upon a time, Jesus gave a sermon. <clears throat> One of his favorite topics was hypocrisy. Jesus didn't tolerate hypocrites well. He would say, woe to you, you hypocrites. See, hypocrisy is saying that you absolutely positively believe one thing, and then every time you're given an opportunity to prove it, you do the exact opposite of that. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not, I say one thing, and then one time I, you know, I, just, I did the wrong thing. That's not hypocrisy. That's just making a mistake. Hypocrisy is saying, swearing up one side and down the other, I believe this, and then always doing the other. Like saying, I wish there was an end to gridlock in Washington and then always voting out of office people who aren't conservative enough or liberal enough because they work across the aisle and so they got to go out of office so we can have somebody who's more conservative or more liberal. And then we can go and we can say, why isn't there more, why is there gridlock in Washington? Why isn't there more unity in Washington? And never see in, our, in, in the mirror our own face and go, oh, well, part of the reason they don't get along is because I tell them I want them to get along, but if they do it, I vote them out of office. And they're smarter than dogs. They learn pretty quick. See, unity is something that we say we really want, but it is very evasive. But unity comes through the gospel, where we become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. But notice this. He also calls them sojourners and exiles. And this is important language, right? Sojourners and exiles. This is key language for what Peter is attempting to do here. A sojourner is not just a random person who was walking among the Old Testament people of God. It was a technical term for somebody who actually gave an identity and an alliance, kind of pledged allegiance to the God that the people of God were following and said, I want to worship your God and I want to be with you, and that, that made them a sojourner. But they were never going to be Jews. They were always going to just be sojourners. So yeah, you can be with us, but you're just a sojourner. And an exile, right, that's not a person who gets left behind like E.T. An exile is a person who's purposefully left behind for a reason. They've been sent somewhere, and that's where they're stuck. 
until their exile ends. And Peter says, this is who you are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You have value, you have unity, but you're also different. This is why I wore a Cubs jersey when I went to seminary in St. Louis. Because I wanted people to know, I'm not part of you. I'm a Cub fan, and one day we'll win the World Series. Because I wanted to be different. And that's, that's what we are. As Christians, we're different. We're always going to be different. We're never going to be fully part of this world. That's what this means. So we put on the identity of God's people. And then we proclaim the excellencies of God. That's what it says next. What it says, it says, A people for his own possession, that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Proclaim the excellencies of God. So this is the missional part that's all about telling, all about speaking. That we would actually proclaim how wonderful God is because of what he's done, because of the identity that we, we have that didn't come from us, that came from God, that came from what he did for us through Christ, what our job is, what our mission is, is actually to proclaim that among people, to say, I was in darkness, and God called me into his marvelous light. Once I was not a people, but now I am a people. Once I had not received mercy, but now I have received mercy. Why? Because God... God just decided to do it. So one of the things that I, I understood or I learned in, in the first service is that your, um, your VBS is very centered on junior high. So if you're in junior high, raise your hand up high so I can see it. Come on, high, high, high. It's, it's not embarrassing to be in junior high. Okay, all right, put them down. Now, raise your hand if you were ever in junior high. Okay, see, 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 you guys got company. When you tell your parents you have no idea just telling you, they've been there. Here's the thing with junior high. Junior high has a way of doing a whole bunch of things to you outside of education, most of which are not that helpful. And for our conversation piece, we'll just use gym class. You know gym class in junior high where you go outside to do some sport or you're inside to do some sport, and the teacher says, we're going to pick teams have two teams, and I'm going to pick the captains, and the captains are going to be the most beautiful, smartest, most physically fit people that I can find, and they're the captains, and their job is to pick teams so that they can win the game that we're going to play. Any of you having a, you know, post-traumatic flashback right now? <laughs> right? So some of you are thinking to yourself, you're darn right, baby. And I was picked second every single time because I am so amazing. Right? And, and thank you to you folks, right? You, you are the reason that I didn't go back to my five-year high school reunion. Right? Because I was the guy who was like, please, please pick me before the girl who's really good at math. It frequently didn't work. Why do we pick teams that way? Because we want to win. Right? We, we want to win. The beauty of the gospel 
the thing that we're supposed to proclaim about the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who made us a people and showed us mercy, is he doesn't pick teams that way. He just picks teams because he picks you because he loves you. Look, look at what, what he says. See, this is starting to sink in for Peter by the time he writes this. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, right after it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord, has, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You're darn right he did. Of course he chose me. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It's because you were the fewest of all the people. So this is, this is the way God operates. God's not looking for the most successful, most beautiful, smartest people. He just loves people. And we get to proclaim out loud the excellencies of him who operates that way. So it says in Hosea, it says... Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Remember when I told you that this is the point that, that is all about telling? So we're going we're gonna to pretend now that we're in a full gospel church, and we're going to turn to the person next to us, and if, if the person next to you is a man, you're going to say, you are my people. And then you're going to turn to the person next to you. If the person next to you is a woman, you're going to say, you have received mercy. Because that's what Hosea says. See, so we're actually going to do a biblical thing here, even though it's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to do a thing that's in the Bible. And so do that right now. Do it. Do it right now. The first, the first congregation got this perfect. So, so here's the thing. That maybe was awkward for some of you. Maybe it was awkward for most of you. But maybe you came in this morning and you thought to yourself, I can barely make it through the day. I literally don't know if I have it in me to even get through this day. I, I don't know if I can even make it. Because I don't think I'm valuable. Because I don't think I'm worth anything. Like I don't think that I really matter at all. And you know what you need to hear this morning? You are God's people, and you have received mercy. And so this telling, even people within the church, if you think people outside the church need to hear this, let me tell you something. People inside the church need to hear this too. Right? We need to hear the gospel just as much as people outside the church do. And so hear me saying, you are his people, and you have received mercy. And finally, we're called to practice the, the, uh, the ethics of God. We're called to practice the ethics of God. Look at what it says. It says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. So this is the missional part that's all about the doing. It's about the way that we live out in front of the world. That we're supposed to keep our actions honorable. That we're supposed to resist the passions of the flesh. 
And if you're familiar with Galatians 5, then you know what the passions of the flesh are because he writes them right down for you. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, sorcery, and orgies. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on how you're doing on this. These are the passions of the flesh. It says, avoid these passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct in front of the Gentiles honorable. And this is, so we say, okay, well, what are those again? Oh, yeah. Uh, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, sorcery, drunkenness, and orgies. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying to yourself, doing pretty good. That's amazing. Unfortunately, that's not all that Galatians 5, 19 and 20 has to say. Let me read to you Galatians 5, 19 and 20 again, but this time I'll read the other words that are in there. Now the works of the flesh are evident, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, and envy. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on how you're doing on that. How many of you think that that describes Washington, D.C.? Idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. When I'm in, in an office, if I have ten conversations, one of them has to do with policy. One, maybe. Most of the time, those conversations are about their lives, just like you have lives. They're about conflict at home. They're about conflict with kids, conflict with parents, worries about kids, worries about parents, worries about health, workplace conflict, trying to not get run over by the White House, trying to not get run over by the other party, trying to not get manipulated by the person that they were supposed to be in their coalition that was really just working them to try to get ahead. And maybe they fall victim to thinking that they can do that. Maybe you become a political staffer and you're a legislative director and you say, I'm the best legislative director ever. I can get this bill passed. I am so amazing. I am so important. Nobody succeeds at this like I do. Oh, now you end up on this list. And now you're in trouble. So when I walk into an office, we get to this part pretty quick. Because there are virtually no safe people in Washington, D.C. for them to say anything to. Because they're so fearful that it's going to be weaponized against them. Because it has so frequently been weaponized against them. And they're under immense pressure, immense pressure from the people who put them in office to get things done. And we blame them if they don't. And sometimes we look the other way and we say, I don't care how you get it done, I just want my tax cut. I just want whatever it is that I want. And the opportunities for them to indulge in the passions of the flesh are very high. And so our job is to come alongside them and try to love them and encourage them. Just like your pastor is trying to love and encourage you as you struggle against the passions of the flesh. All of them in Galatians 5, 19 and 20. And so this is the beauty of, of this ministry, this, this ministry that we get to be a part of, of just really speaking the gospel to people. 
you know, we're not there to advocate for policy. We're not there to try to, you know, make sure that people know what God wants. We're just trying to get people to understand the gospel. And this is where Peter needed to move to, right? Peter, Peter, early on in Peter's life, I think Peter just really thought, man, God just needs me to do everything so that I can just make this happen. And when you, when you, see, here's the thing. People go to Washington because they want to change the world. And as Christians, sometimes we think we have to change the world, but we don't. We don't have to change the world. What we have to do is serve Jesus. God may or may not decide to change the world at various times through things that we do, but that's not our primary call. Our primary call is to believe the gospel. I wish I knew that when I planted my first church. It was a disaster. Me, me, because I was a disaster. Because I believe that everybody, that, that church had to change the world. And that meant that people needed to get on the same page with me so that we could change the world together in Iowa City. And that meant that things needed to be a certain way and people needed to be involved and more people needed to sign up to do things. More people needed to sign up for nursery and Sunday school and how come more people didn't come to this outreach dinner? And why aren't you guys getting with the program and doing enough stuff so that we can change the world? My oldest daughter is married. Uh, she lives in Dallas, Texas with her husband. She attended church this morning. My second oldest daughter graduated from art school in May and has not been back in church since the day after she graduated. Because I was really, really busy trying to change the world in Iowa City. And I made it seem like that was the most important thing because I had no concept of what the gospel was supposed to be like. And I communicated that very loudly to my children. And they got it, unfortunately. And so, the good news of the gospel is that God does not need you to change the world. You know what he needs? He needs you to be a pink spoon. So, who knows what this is? Who knows where I got this? No. Baskin Robbins, and you get this at Baskin Robbins, why do you get it? What's this used for? Free samples, right? And you get a free sample because they want you to do what? They want you to get more. They want you to take that little taste of peppermint chocolate ice cream or banana. Ooh, banana and chocolate's really good. And you say to yourself, oh, that was so good, I want more. I just want more. Where can I get more of that? God doesn't need you to be the first person out of the boat. He doesn't need you to be making promises that you can't deliver on. He doesn't need you to whack off somebody's ear. He doesn't need you to prove that you're the most important person ever. What he needs you to do is be a pink spoon, to rest in the identity that God has given you as one of his children, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light, and to just live your life in front of the Gentiles in such a way that they say, man, oh man, every time I interact with that person. I want more. Where could I get more of that? And that's doable. That's doable for everybody. You don't have to change the world. You just have to be a pink spoon of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you are a good and a gracious God who loves us who sent your son for us. 
and who strengthens us to live our lives in front of the world. In Christ's name, amen.